Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The philosophy of sex. Welcome to the philosophy of sex. I'm Caroline Moreau Hammond. The contraceptive pill has an interesting and at times ethically dubious history. Biologists John Rock and Gregory Pincus teamed up to develop the birth control pill. Funded by $2 million from philanthropist Catherine Dexter McCormick and spurred on by contraceptive crusader Margaret Sanger. For years, Pingus had been searching for a project that might establish his greatness. While there were many possible risks associated in taking on the pill project, it concerned the area of science he knew best mammalian reproduction. He knew that his progestins, synthetic forms of progesterone, stopped ovulation in rabbits and rats. The next step was to test them on women. And to do that, he would need a doctor who could reassure patients they were safe. There had never been a medicine made for healthy people before, and certainly not one that was taken every day. The risks were enormous. Pegasus settled on gynaecologist John Rock, Rock was an attractive, well-respected and, most importantly, Catholic man. He had already gained a small measure of fame as the Catholic doctor who dared defy his church. He wanted young couples to talk about sex and babies before they married. He wanted them to understand that sex was neither shameful nor obscene. And he wanted society to provide safe and effective means of birth control. And he wanted married couples to have the right to use them. After teaming up, Pincus and Rock began trials in 1954. State laws prohibiting contraceptive research made it difficult to set up trials. So Rock and Pincus controversially first tested the drug on male and female patients at the Worcester State Psychiatric Hospital in Massachusetts, and then on women in the slums of Puerto Rico and Haiti. The first oral contraceptive pill Enovid was approved by the US FDA on May 9, 1960. It was released in Australia on the 1st of February 1961 under the name Enovla. Half a century on and the impacts of the pill are remarkable. It's hard to think of an invention that has had a greater impact on women's position in society. Women were suddenly free of the social boxes and biology that had previously constrained them. They didn't have to fear unwanted pregnancies and could have risk-free sex, just like men. And from this, we saw the advent of the sexual revolution. Today, approximately 70% of Australian women of reproductive age employ some form of birth control. On the basis of 2013 data, 27 to 34% of women used oral contraception. And this number has been relatively steady for decades. Despite its ubiquity, dialogue about how the pill works and how it can impact the women who take it is rare. And as it turns out, the potential side effects aren't insignificant. The pill has been found to impact the mood, stress response and sexual appetite of many of the women who consume it. 
And the pill can change everything from how women cope with stress to who women want to have sex with. It's also associated with an increased risk of anxiety and depression, particularly in younger women. So how does the pill work? And what effect does it have on the people who take it? And what run-on effects does this have for wider society? To answer these questions, I've enlisted the help of Dr. Sarah E. Hill. Sarah is an award-winning research psychologist and professor at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Working at the intersection of evolutionary biology, social psychology and neuroscience, her research is aimed at understanding the role hormones, the immune system and the environment play in sexual and relationship behaviours, especially in women. Her book, How the Pill Changes Everything, was released in 2019. I can't imagine anyone better placed to comment on the impact the pill has at an individual level for those who take it, as well as from a broader social standpoint. In this conversation, Sarah and I discuss the role of evolutionary psychology in helping us understand sexual behaviour, what the pill is, and what it changes for those who consume it. Please enjoy my conversation with Sarah. So I wondered if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself, about the field of psychology that you work in and how you actually came to work in that field. Yeah, so I am a uh, an evolutionary psychologist and I have been in the field of research now for over 20 years. You know, an evolutionary sort of approach to psychology is just one that really treats humans as being no different than any other type of living organism. And we use this idea that um, we should expect to see that a lot of the qualities that we have as human beings um, reflect predispositions that we've inherited from our ancestors who've been able to successfully survive and reproduce. And so that's been sort of my theoretical orientation. Um, but in terms of what I like actually study in the content of my research, I've spent most of my career studying women's relationship and sexual psychology, um, and especially as it relates to different types of biological processes going on in the body, and then also our sex hormones. Um, and so I, I was really got interested in studying these things because a lot of the things that we've known about, you know, relationship psychology, sexual psychology, sexual attraction, um, hormones and their influence on the brain. Um, a lot of the research that had been done in these areas had been really done from a, a male-focused perspective. So I was always really interested in trying to get on the the female side of things and better understand how women work. Mm. And can you tell us a little bit more about how extreme the sort of male bias is in research? I think a lot of people don't know a lot of the assumptions that are made in research. So could you explain why it's so important, the research that you're doing, why it specifically focuses on women? Whenever we're dealing with biological systems, so we're trying to understand hormones or we're trying to understand the way that our brains work, um, historically, a lot of that research has been done focused on male subjects. And medical research has been very much the same way. And the reason for this is that women are more complicated to study. Uh, and the reason we're more complicated to study is just because our hormones change. And what this means is if you're going to do carefully controlled research, 
um, as a researcher, you need to account for the influence of hormonal changes, you know, at different phases of the cycle and even at different phases of life, like whether we're going to be looking at women who are premenopausal and cycling or looking at women who are postmenopausal. Um, we're looking at two different, you know, or three different types of organisms here. And so the way that researchers have gotten around um, studying women has, you know, and having to tr- keep track of all of these different types of hormonal changes um, has been by studying men. Uh, and then just sort of making the assumption that everything that happens in men then should also be happening in women. But anybody who is a female uh, knows that this isn't necessarily the case, you know, and, you know, as a society, we're beginning to demand things like, you know, when the COVID vaccine was coming out, we were demanding, like, we need to make sure that this is something that's been studied in women. And then, you know, we need to make sure this is something that's studied in pregnant women, for example, if we're going to be recommending it to pregnant women. Or, you know, it's, it's just, I think that we're starting to understand a little bit more that our different biological processes might influence how we experience the world. But, you know, for a very long time, it wasn't. And uh, a lot of the assumptions that we have about, you know, what's like sort of normal behavior or like a normal way that the brain responds to something or the normal way that our sexual response works is based on normal as defined by being male. And, um, and because that doesn't really characterize like the, the way that women experience things, um, I was always really interested in trying to get a better handle on what are some of the things that are are female specific and to help us uh, get a better understanding of of ourselves. Mm. Obviously I want to get more into talking about the specifics of how you've conducted research into the contraceptive pill and some of more of the sort of biological factors that you are researching, Before we do that, I wanted to jump into talking a little bit more about the evolutionary psychology side of your work. If you could start by just sort of breaking down for people the difference between the neuroscience component of what you do versus the evolutionary psychology component of what you do and how those two things are linked and why it's important to kind of have both of them reflected. Right. No, I think that that's an excellent question. You know, using, um, being a researcher who uses an evolutionary approach to try to understand the brain and understand behavior, it's really, it's a set of theoretical tools that we can use to, as a starting point for making predictions about how things work. So for example, if we act, you know, with a starting assumption that many of the qualities that we see as being characteristic of human beings things like who we are attracted to or, you know, the nature of the sexual response or the experience of different types of emotions, right? Like love and disgust, things that we know are human universals. If we sort of operate with the starting point of assuming that we have inherited those, you know, that these qualities um, reflect in adaptation to help, you know, solve some sort of important problem associated with survival and reproduction, it gives us a really powerful starting point for making predictions about things, right? So for example, we can say to ourselves, we'll just use disgust as an example, you know, given that all human beings, you know, no matter where you go around the world, experience this emotion of disgust, 
is it possible, you know, we could make the prediction that this might be a trait that we have because it helps to promote avoidance of germs, right? So if we see something gross and it makes us go yuck, that maybe that yuck response is something that we've inherited because it's helping to promote, you know, successful avoidance Mm -hmm. of, of germs. And obviously we can't build a time machine, right? And see whether or not, you know, did we actually inherit this quality from our ancient ancestors, you know, a million years ago. Um, but we don't need to be able to do that, right? Because the function or the, or, the, or the whole raison d'etre of the evolutionary <laughs> approach isn't to prove that evolution happened or, you know, it's just, it's really just to give us a set of tools to make predictions about the way that things actually work. And so yeah. when you combine this sort of approach you know, again, just sort of starting with this theoretical perspective that gives us, you know, sort of thinking about things in terms of function, a really powerful starting point to try to better understand the mechanics of the way that our brain works and the way that our hormones work, the way that our different motivational systems work. We know from uh, years of research in neuroendocrinology, when women are experiencing the estrogen surge that that occurs right near ovulation, that women experience different types of motivational changes, right? Mm-hmm. And so as an evolu- somebody with an evolutionary perspective on this, you know, given that um, the process of evolution by natural selection passes on traits based on their ability to be successfully inherited, you know, we might predict that when women are experiencing this estrogen surge right near ovulation, that this should be associated with an increase in sexual desire that promotes sexual behavior, which, you know, if it's occurring um, at a point in the cycle when conception is possible, it would tend to lead to that trait to get passed down from one generation to the next, right? And lo and behold, you know, that's exactly what the research finds is that, you know, women um, at points in the cycle when estradiol increases, that they experience an uptick in, in in sexual desire. And Um, also sexual behavior, right? And so marrying these types of approaches gives us a powerful starting point to ask new questions, right? Like what should we expect to see given that we're sort of um, assuming that many of the qualities that we have that are sort of human universals are things that have been inherited because they worked? And then how can we use that as a starting point to better understand um, the different types of psychological and, and neurobiological processes that we have? Yeah. Yeah. One thing I think that people can often feel when they come across sort of um, theories of evolutionary psychology is that it can feel quite abstracted. You know, it can be about what our ancestors did before there were all of these risks involved in things like sex that we're just not subject to now. So can you explain why those ideas are still relevant and still present yeah, no, I think um, it, 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 that's that's an important question, right? Because um, it, it, in a lot of ways, it highlights the fact that human behavior and our, you know, our psychological processes are incredibly complex, right? And any sort of behavior or trait that we see um, in people is going to um, emerge as a result of both like an inherited set of predispositions or like pre-programmed neural parameters that exist within our brain, but then also different types of cultural influences. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that, you know, sort of understanding that using this evolutionary perspective is really just a starting point 
um, to better understand like what are the qual, you know, what are some of the predictions that we might make about human behavior? Then that you know gives us something new that we know about the way that our brains work. And if they're not supported, it's you know it, it again it, it tells us that you know th- there's a lot more to what we do than simply you know these these really sort of simple um, pre-programmed. Uh, neural parameters. And, and just to give um, just to give an example to try to contextualize this, you know, given that historically a woman's reproductive capacity has been very strongly linked um, to her youth, right? So youthfulness in women is something that is associated with the ability to um, you know, go on and and reproduce and pass down genes. Um, and, you know, because of that, we can make the prediction that men should have a heightened preference for younger partners than themselves, right? And so we can go out and collect data on that. And lo and behold, you know, oftentimes we find that men do exhibit um, a preference for younger partners. But even now, you know, we're starting to see that that's changing. And then it's, you know, changing is because we have all of these cultural um, products that allow women um, to maintain beauty and vitality, you know, even uh, once they are older. Um, and just an example, I'm, I've been working on a project with um, with Cougar Life, which is a, a dating app for for uh, for women who are interested in younger men and younger men who are interested in older women. And what you see is, you know, because we we surveyed and asked people are you okay dating somebody who's even up to 10 years older than yourself? So we did find evidence that, you know, many women reported being interested or open to the idea of dating, dating men who are are up to 10 years older than themselves. We also found that the majority of men were too. 60% of men said that they were open to this possibility. And, And I think that this, again, goes to show that it's not just this, you know, sort of simplistic, you know, um, we inherited these predispositions from our ancestors and therefore we're going to behave like cavemen. Instead, it's like, you know, we've inherited these predispositions from our ancestors and those things then are operating within a larger cultural context and cultural influences. And, um, and that then will of course lead to differences in behavioral patterns, which is what we see with the, the, the cougar life data, you know, looking at, looking at men, um, and their, their willingness to be open to these, these female led age gap relationships. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, it is it is always an interesting question of where does sort of biology begin and socialization end and vice versa. And obviously there's an extent to which you can extrapolate those things out, but I'm sure there are moments where it's probably pretty challenging to know the difference when you're collecting data, right? Right. Well, I think that is, you know, I, and I think that science is finally starting to pick up on this a little bit. Yeah. But it's like everything that we do and experience and feel mm-hmm is a result of both things. You know, it's yeah. like, there's never going to be, I mean, I don't even, I can't think of a single thing where I could say like, oh no, that's just biological or like, oh no, that's just social. It's like, you know, our brain is this like, you know, bio, incredibly biological thing, you know, entity. And it's responsible for like creating all the little, you know, uh, signals and electrical signals and and chemical releases that then produce our behavior. But all of those things, all of those really biological chemical things are being influenced by what's going on in our environment. And so everything really is 
um, is biosocial, you know, it's nature by nurture and nurture by nature, you know, and trying to t- tease those different things apart, um, I think is, yeah, I mean, it's a huge challenge, but I, I think that even like understanding that when I'm studying something, for example, that if I'm looking at a biological influence as a cause of a behavior, that it's a cause, not the cause. And I think for a long time, the way that researchers were talking about the way, you know, the types of things that they were studying was, well, the cause of this is this. And the and it's like, it's too simplistic. It's everything is causal. Us being able to really wrap our brains around that and be able to be okay with it. And that is not a simple answer. Um, I think has been one of the most exciting things, like in terms of the way that science has progressed since the time I came into the field. I think there's a, d- a much deeper appreciation mm. and acknowledgement f- about that than there used to be. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, one one of the, and I think this is something you actually handle really well in the book, is that sometimes the sort of theories and ideas and research that can emerge from these studies, particularly looking at gender differences can be a bit unfortunate, right? Like they can sometimes reinforce things that we would prefer to not necessarily be true, like that women generally are more choosy with sexual partners than men are and and things like that. There's a a myriad of really interesting examples of it in your book. But yeah, can can you just explain how you typically respond to people, I don't know, feeling uneasy about it? from even from just like a feminist perspective. Yeah. I mean, look, I I think that there is a tendency for people to assume that if you're, you know, talking about, um, you know, men and women are different from one another um, because of these different evolutionary uh, forces that are associated with reproduction. And because women have had to bear the cost of pregnancy, that that means that women are going to be choosier and more careful about sex partners um, I, I do think that um, given the mishandling of women by science for so long, that um, women do tend to feel a little bit like sensitive about that. Like, wait a minute, are you, you, you just, yeah, are you just reinforcing gender role stereotypes about like women should be, be nurturing or reducing women to their uteruses, right? And saying, well, this is what you should be doing. You know, it's like women shouldn't be in the workplace because they should just be off having babies because that's what we were supposed to, you know, that's what our bodies were meant to do. Um, But evolutionary-based explanations and these types of explanations are really just a starting point to help us understand patterns that we might see in the real world. Um, But they're not by any means prescriptive or limiting. Um, because just because our ancestors, you know, our successful ancestors, um, you know, were choosy. And as a result of that, they passed down their genes. That doesn't mean, you know, that we have to be, you know, it's like we've changed our world and our society in a way that has made things a lot less limiting for women. I mean, we have birth control. The idea that, you know, we need to be you know, demure housewives and really picky about our partners and not have short-term sex or whatever, all of that stuff goes out the window because now sex no longer has to correspond um, to the possibility of a nine-month investment in pregnancy. That's not true for women anymore. It was true for our ancestors, is not true for us. Um, because we do have contraception. Um, assuming that this is, you know, sort of reinforcing these uh, gender role stereotypes again, is, 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 is making something, it's making it too simple, like, like too simple of an explanation for human behavior. And 
and and the things that we do and the choices that we make are, are so complex and they're they're multi you know the the factors that influence them are multi-causal and this is just one of them and so just saying that you know because this was true for your ancestors this needs to be true for you um it's, it's just false and i mean honestly and as i write this in my book um i have always found as a woman the idea that i've inherited you know some biological predispositions that i've inherited from my successful you know great 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 grandmothers and in that i don't have to follow those rules but i've inherited these sort of predispositions that to me feels a lot more empowering than the alternative view which is this idea that women are just like passive you know, sheep. Um, and the reason that, you know, we are choosier about our short-term sex partners than men are because most women are because we're somehow, you know, just like passive receptacles of cultural influence that we just, you know, <laughs> accept without fighting back on. And so like, to me, I find that insulting, <laughs> you know, it's like I'd much, I said, it's a lot more empowering to think about us being who we are because of inherited wisdom that we can of course do whatever we want to with, because it's not prescriptive. Yeah. yeah it's a yeah. more powerful position than the alternative. No. Well, yeah. I mean, more knowledge is always better, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I think to, to give a bit more context to some of this, let's, let's actually start talking about biology and the biology that sits behind so much of what drives sexual behavior. So obviously women have a much higher investment in pregnancy. Can you explain why? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, so women, uh, you know, are, are the way that our bodies are built because we're mammals, um, we are stuck when conception occurs. So, you know, if you have an act of sex between a man and a woman, um, the man's like, you know, minimum, absolute minimum level of investment in pregnancy, um, leaves with the man when he takes off after sex is done. Um, cause the minimum level of investment that a man has to make in order for conception to occur is just the act of sex. Right. And then like whatever amount of time he had to spend, like talking <laughs> a woman into having sex with him. Um, but that's, I mean, that's like the minimum level of investment, but for women, because we're mammals, um, you know, it, we have this minimum of a nine month investment. And of course it goes on internally because we internally gestate, um, and it's dangerous. I mean, women, thousands of women still die every year from childbirth. Um, and so we have these very expensive, you know, biologically and time-wise pregnancies that are also very risky to our health. Um, and because of this, it just means that the consequences of sex have been historically much greater for women than they have for men. And so the idea here is that, you know, contemporary women that we've inherited from our successful ancestors, a little bit of a wariness about sexual, you know, behavior with somebody or, or sex with somebody when pregnancy is possible. Now, what's really interesting about this is that you can see that even these like sort of ancient predispositions that we've inherited from our female ancestors, right? That tell us like, be a little bit wary about sex because it could potentially be incredibly costly. They are still factoring in the fact that we have contraception because you've seen that, you know, culturally we have a lot of changes in, um, in people's sexual behavior as a consequence of contraception, um, women are much 
much less um, concerned about um, pregnancy and the possibility of pregnancy. And because of that, women have become um, more open to, um, you know, short-term sexual encounters than they were even in our great-grandmother's day. You know, in the time of our great-grandmothers where there wasn't really reliable, safe, effective, easy-to-use contraception, um, any man that she might have slept with could have potentially ended up being the father of a child, right? And so that requires a higher level of scrutiny when you're choosing somebody than, you know, the guy that you think's kind of cute and you're going to bring home from the bar, right? And, and so even though women are a little bit more cautious about their choice of sexual partners, um, especially in a short-term context than men, because we have inherited this, this wariness about short-term sex because it's oftentimes associated with these relatively high costs of, of reproduction. Um, we're also factoring in the fact that we that the probability of having to pay that cost is much less than it used to be, right? Because when we have perception, um, the possible, you know, the probability of getting pregnant from an act of sex when we're using it correctly is exceedingly low. And that goes into our decision making. And we see this in the way in the changes in women's sexual behavior. And since the time of the, you know, birth control being made available to um, single women, which started to happen in the late, very late 60s, early 70s, you had the sexual revolution. And, you know, and sexual revolution was primarily driven by women finally, right, sort of being open to more open to the idea of short-term sexual encounters. Yeah. As part of that, I wanted to ask you about the Florida study, which is obviously one that you cite in the book. And it gets used as sort of an example of this difference in selectiveness around sexual partners between men and women. So can you just explain what that study did? And then we can talk about it a little bit more. Yeah, no, I love this study. It's one of, um, it's a, it's, it's a classic <laughs> in the field. And this was a study that was done in the late 1980s. And the researchers um, had uh, a male and female actress to canvas the, the university quad and approach members of the opposite sex and say to them this, hi, I've been noticing you around campus and I find you very attractive. And then they would follow this with one of three questions. One, in a third of the conditions, the men and women would ask the people they approached, would you go on a date with me? In a third of the conditions, they'd ask the men and women they approached, would you go back to my apartment with me? And then in a third of the condition, they asked the men and women that they approached, would you go to bed with me? Or would you have sex with me? And then they simply recorded whether or not met the men and women that they approached with these requests um, agreed, um, agreed to the request or not. And what the research found was that for both men and women, 50% of those approached on the university campus consented to the date, right? They said, yeah, sure, I'll go on a date with you, random stranger who approached me to ask me on a date. Um, and so 50% said yes. Um, when it came to, would you go back to my apartment with me? That's where we started to get some sex differences, right? And so it turns out that in this case, three, it was somewhere between three and 8% of women said that they would go back to the apartment, the guy's apartment with them. 75% um, of men said yes to this request, right? So you see this huge difference. And when it came to, would you have sex with me? What you see is 68% of men saying, yes, I would have sex with you, a complete stranger who just approached me on campus 
um, to ask me for sex. And 0% of women consented to this arrangement, right? And what this really illustrates for us is that there are definitely sex differences in the degree to which men and women are sexually opportunistic, meaning that for women, sexual opportunism isn't even something that we really need to capitalize on because most men are are sexually opportunistic. So most women, you know, if most women want to go out and have sex, they can, um, because generally their consent is the rate limiting factor because men are so sexually opportunistic relative to us. And the reason for this is just because men historically over evolutionary time would have everything to gain and almost nothing to lose from engaging in short-term sexual behavior. That's like actually no strings attached. Mm. It's, it has almost no cost, but for yeah. females, you know, for women, it's just not the same because mm. we have that. Um, if we get pregnant, that's nine months of investment. Then, you know, of course, with the risks of childbirth and then any amount of time that we would subsequently spend lactating. And mm. so th- that's a really big cost for us. And so we get these differences in men's and women's sexual opportunism um, that are really well illustrated by that study yeah. um, that reflect our differences in our reproductive biology. Yeah. I think another thing that is important to factor in there is also sort of things like risk of sexual violence for women. It's another yeah. another form of cost as to why I can imagine a lot of women wouldn't just like point blank go back to a stranger's apartment upon request. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, you know, because e- e- even that, you know, why is it, because then we can ask the, the next layer of questions, which is like, why is it that the risk of sexual violence is so much greater for women? And one of it is that men are stronger than women, right? Of course, there's that. But that ultimately, you know, we can kind of boil down to some sort of evolutionary forces as well. But it's like the reason that men are so much more often the perpetrators of sexual violence relative to women is, again, because of this asymmetry in our reproductive biology, right? The benefits of short-term sex are high um, for men. They're really low for women. Um, and they're really costly. And and that's also probably part of the sort of, um, you know, evolutionary forces that are responsible for some of the more grisly aspects of, um, of men's mating psychology, including the willingness to engage in uh, sexual coercion. Yeah. I mean, and these are the kinds of things that make me a little bit cynical about things like consent laws and how, like how effective some of that stuff can kind of be in in light of these, you know, in light of these predispositions. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say this, you know, is that like, even, you know, if we sort of understand something terrible, like infanticide or something like sexual coercion in terms of some larger evolutionary processes that might've been responsible for, you know, um, having this even be something that would occur to people to do, um, that doesn't mean that that's like something that all all men would do if they had the opportunity or that's something that, you know, that 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 is like this adaptation um, that that men are sort of, you know, wired to do these terrible things to women. Instead, it's just like, you know, we understand the fact that men are going to behave aggressively um, to women. If we sort of see that that's some, a cultural pattern that occurs, we can use this to better understand why is it that we see this um, happening in the domain of um, sexual behavior. And, you know, and that sort of gives us some, some insights into that with the idea being, we understand what the different processes are that contribute to behavior that we don't like, that -hmm. then we can help to better set circumstances such that we can prevent those behaviors. Yeah. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, I guess to, to dive down into starting to talk a little bit more about the contraceptive pill. Mm-hmm. Can you explain why understanding all of the stuff that we've just spoken about is important in the context of thinking about the contraceptive pill? Yeah, you know, it, it's really uh, interesting to, like, I think that the perspective I take in the book is not necessarily one that a person would um, expect, but I think that it ends up being, uh, it's, 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 it, it really puts it into context why it's important. A lot of the things about ourselves, like including our sexual psychology and some of these other things, um, are driven by these different biological processes um, that we have inherited from our successful ancestors, including our sex hormones. And um, the contraceptive pill, um, because it prevents ovulation, which is the, you know, where a woman matures and releases an egg each month which is also the responsible for the synthesis of women's sex hormones. When we understand that when we take the contraceptive pill, that it's preventing this normal um, fluctuation of hormones that women have been experiencing since the time of our great, 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 great grandmothers, you know, our ancestors, um, then it suggests that, you know, this could potentially have implications for all sorts of things about ourselves, right? So given that we're preventing this biological process um, that has been guiding women's behavior since the dawn of time, um, then that could end up having downstream consequences for all of these different types of sort of motivational changes and behavioral changes that we see that are touched by women's sex hormones. So can you explain what hormones are? It sounds like a pretty obvious question, but I think a lot of people don't understand the really vital role that they play and just how much of our, how many of our body's functions um, they are actually responsible for. Yeah. So, you know, when you come, you know, when you're trying to understand what are the different biological signals that are responsible for creating the experience of being the people that we are, the two of those signaling systems um, that are really, you know, responsible for, for everything about us, like how we feel, what, how motivated we are, um, how we behave, our likes, our dislikes, what feels good to us and what feels bad to us, neurotransmitters 
um, are responsible for creating those experiences for us. And so too are hormones, Mm -hmm. right? The only real difference with hormones and neurotransmitters, I mean, there's a variety of different differences, but they're both communication systems within the body that are responsible for coordinating the activities of what goes on in the body and then also what goes on in the brain. And so our hormones, you know, are, are, are no different um, really than our, than our neurotransmitters. I mean, they're part of our, they're part of what our brain uses to create who we are. Um, the, the only real difference is how they are communicated in the body. So neurotransmitters go from, um, you know, synapse to synapse. So it's like point to point, whereas hormones are released diffuse in the body. And so they affect any cell in your body that has a, has a hormone receptor instead of just going point to point and only affecting the cell that you're actually directly communicating with. You know, in this way, the effect of hormones on the body um, tend to be more, almost like more pervasive and all-encompassing. Because if your if your body releases, for example, the sex hormone testosterone, that affects every single cell in your body that has receptors for testosterone, which means it's going to affect what goes on with your skin. It's going to affect what goes on with your hair. It's going to affect what goes on in your brain. Um, and of course, that means that it's going to influence how you feel and and respond to the world. Mm. And obviously the way hormones function in men and women are quite different. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, women's two primary sex hormones are uh, estradiol or estrogen um, and then progesterone. And uh, women's uh, sex hormones wax and wane over the course of the ovulatory cycle. Um, So if if we think about a woman's ovulatory cycle as being a 28-day cycle, which is what you know, it is on average, you can think about the first half of the cycle, um, which is oftentimes called the follicular phase of the cycle. This is the part in a a woman's cycle that starts on the day that she gets her period, right? So day one of your cycle is the day you get your period. And this continues until around day 14 of the cycle. And during this time, egg follicles are being stimulated um, and a mature um, egg is being sort of matured and it's associated with the release of high levels of estrogen. And so during this phase of the cycle for a naturally cycling woman, women are experiencing different types of psychological, physiological, and behavioral changes that are associated with high levels of estrogen. So for example, we know that estrogen release is associated with um, higher sexual desire, um, more sexual motivation, women generally have um, a greater uh, in, like need to like talk to people. They get more extroverted. They're more sensation seeking. So they just like mm-hmm. want to do things that, that make them feel right. We, we find that it's associated with higher levels of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we tend to get those types of patterns during that first half of the cycle when estrogen is the dominant sex hormone. The second half of the cycle, which happens after ovulation, Um, During this phase of the cycle, estrogen levels begin to fall um, immediately following ovulation. And then uh, a second sex hormone, progesterone, gets released. And progesterone gets released from the vacated egg follicle. So once the egg gets released at ovulation, that empty follicle that was just holding on to that egg actually becomes a temporary endocrine organ and it starts releasing progesterone. Progesterone is um, associated with a different set of, you know, physiological and behavioral changes. So when yeah. progesterone is high, women tend to be sleepier. They tend to be hungrier. They tend to have lower sexual desire. 
Um, and, you know, and, and so we start, we see these sorts of waxing and waning and naturally cycling women, um, which of course then makes us ask as researchers who are interested in contraception and the contraceptive pill, you know, given that the contraceptive pill works by preventing ovulation, right? Preventing that maturing of that egg follicle and that high release of estrogen, and then preventing ovulation and the, then the vacating of that egg follicle and the release of progesterone. What does it do? You know, how, how do we feel when we're on the birth control pill, right? If we know that estrogen makes us feel this way and progesterone makes us feel that way. And we find that in naturally cycling women, you get this waxing and waning of motivational states and behavioral states um, and psychological experiences. What happens to women when they take the pill and that's eliminated? Um, and that was really where um, I, my starting point was um, when I started writing the book, because I was really interested in how that works. And, uh, and what, you know, the way that the pill works, the way that it stops ovulation is by sending this synthetic uh, chemical message um, to the brain that mimics a state of high progesterone and low estrogen. And the, re the way that this works is um, because during the second half of the cycle, which is called the luteal phase of the cycle, when progesterone is being released, that release of progesterone and the relatively low levels of estrogen that are co-occurring, that sends a message to the brain, do not mature any egg follicles right now because you just released an egg, right? And so what the pill does is it mimics that hormonal message. So that way the brain doesn't signal to the ovaries to start maturing an egg. And so the birth control pill rather, you know, for a naturally cycling woman, you go through this 28 day cycle where you have high levels of estrogen and low levels of progesterone, right? Followed by this period of the cycle where you have high levels of progesterone and low levels of estrogen. You supplant that with the same hormonal message every day. And the hormonal message that's that's contained in these hormonal contraceptive pills or the shot or whatever hormonal birth control you're on is one that is a message of high levels of progesterone, which is something that's mimicked via these synthetic progesterone molecules called progestins, um, and then low levels of estradiol. And so then the question becomes for researchers who are interested in women's brains and behavior, how does a message of progestin and low estradiol every day of a woman's life, you know, while she's on it, how does that shape behavior? So how do women think, feel, and behave when they're under the influence of synthetic, uh, these synthetics? Yeah. And I think we're obviously sent a lot of messaging around the fact that it's safe to use, that um, there are some sort of isolated side effects, but they're not all-encompassing. There's, there's not really a lot of recognition of the fact that you are shutting down function in the body from naturally occurring in the way that it's kind of designed to, for lack of a better term. So what happens then when um, when a woman is on birth control? Obviously, you give so many different examples in the book relating to sex and stress. So maybe let's start by talking about sex and how it can impact a woman's experience of her sexuality. Right. So, you know, we know that estrogen is something that's associated with uh, women's feelings of sexiness, sexual desire, sexual attraction, 
also just sexual function. And, you know, not surprisingly, when you take hormonal birth control, um, when it keeps your estrogen levels really low and supplants it with this, you know, hormonal message of high progestin, low estrogen, um, that it's associated with, um, with lower levels of libido, um, lower sexual desire. Women don't smell as sexy to men um, when they're on the pill relative to off of it. There's also uh, evidence showing that it can cause reduced sexual function. So not just lowering sexual desire, but also like diminishing things like lubrication, which can cause painful sex to women. And there's even some research that finds that um, it may influence who women are attracted to. Um, because women's attraction and our attraction psychology is also very much hormonally influenced. And there's a lot of research that's been done now for years now showing that women, when estrogen is high in the cycle, that tends to increase the priority that women place on qualities associated with masculinity in men. Um, and now there's research uh, that's been demonstrating that women who choose their partners on the birth control pill, that they tend to exhibit um, a somewhat, you know, less preference for those types of qualities. And they tend to choose as partners, uh, men with somewhat less masculine uh, faces than what's chosen by naturally cycling women. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we see all of these different ways that um, hormonal birth control has sort of touched um, on on men's and women's psychological functioning. So interesting. <laughs> it is so interesting. It's like it's so provocative. It is provocative because I mean, I think um a huge amount of women are on the birth control pill. And even the the research you present in the book around um immune systems and how women who are naturally cycling are more likely to choose a partner with like a compatible immune system in the event that they reproduce. Obviously, this isn't something that's going to be like happening in the conscious mind of the woman who's taking the birth control or naturally cycling. It's not like you think, oh, I like the smell of this person. Like they smell like someone I'd like to reproduce with because their immune system is like. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just like, hmm, I like that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And, and and that's the way that these processes go on in the body, right? It's never that we're consciously thinking to ourselves like, wow, that was like a great reproduction partner because I bet our genes are different from one another. And won't that be fabulous when we have kids? Instead, it's just like, wow, that guy smells really good. And I want to sit on his lap and make out with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think it's, it's my experience of this was and you've spoken about this as well as sort of feeling a feeling of waking up from a nap when you uh, come off of birth control. And obviously that's not going to be the experience for women. But I think when I did come off of it, I noticed such significant changes that it really helped me understand the power of hormones and the role that they play because it was something where something that I was unconscious of kind of came to the fore in quite, quite an obvious way. Is that a common experience that you see for for women? Yeah, you know, it's funny because um, I hear that all the time from people mm -hmm. is that they feel like they're one dimensional and now they're three dimensional. Um, I had the same. I mean, I had the same experience um, as I write about in my book. It's you know, I felt very much like I woke up when I went off of it, and it was just like I felt things more deeply. I felt more alive, you know, and sometimes 
feeling alive meant that I felt more emotional and, and, you know, which could be seen as like bad, but it, it was so much better. Like it felt so much better to feel like, like I was actually experiencing the full range of experiences in life again. Um, and like you, I, I very much, um, when I went off of birth control and, and started to feel like myself again, that was really when I had that same moment where I was like, how in the world could I have been, you know, it's like I'd studied intellectually the role of hormones and how they influence psychology and all of these things. So I knew on an intellectual level, hormones matter and they influence these things. It, I never connected the dots with my birth control. I never connected the dots that taking something that was changing my hormones would then of course change all of these different processes with me. And it wasn't until I went off of it that I was like, oh my gosh, duh, of course. Yeah, of course. Of course I felt so different. And like you, I was like, and it it is sort of underscored and highlighted, like for me, like this stuff does matter. Our hormones are so important um, because yeah, it really can feel very eye-opening to a lot of women. And I hear that all the time. Mm, yeah. And I mean, can you talk also a bit about the stress response and how a pill can impact mental health and, and stress basically? Yeah. So there's been research now that's been going on since the nineties. I'm showing that women who are on hormonal birth control, that they're exhibiting differences in their response to stress relative to what's observed um, in, uh, in naturally cycling women. Um, And so for most healthy, happy, high functioning adults, um, if you stress them out, you have two things that happen. The first is you get your, your autonomic, I mean, your sympathetic stress response, which is the thing where your, your heart starts racing and your, um, and your mouth goes dry and, you know, and you're feeling stressed out. But the other thing that happens is within about five minutes of experiencing the stressful event, your body releases the stress hormone cortisol. Um, and cortisol, even though it's kind of like, we tend to vilify it, right? Cause we always say cortisol is bad, you know, stress, bad, cortisol, bad. Cortisol is bad if we're like exposed to it in the long term. Like if you have high cortisol all the time, because it helps to redistribute the body's energy resources away from things like immune system um, functioning and cell repair and growth. And it tends to take all of those resources and redirect them to dealing with whatever stressing us out. Long-term exposure to stress and cortisol is bad for us just because it takes all of our body's resources and points it at stress, which means that we're not doing things like repairing ourselves, you know, investing in our immune system and so on. And so, but cortisol in the short term, when you're stressed out is a very good thing because it actually is doing those things that we just talked about. When we're stressed out, what cortisol does is it tells our body, take all of the energy that you would normally be using to do status quo things and direct it toward doing things like being vigilant and paying attention to what's going on in your environment. It leads to the birth of new neurons in the hippocampus, which allows us to be able to remember the stressful event. So that way, if we encounter something like that in the future, we can deal with it better. And it also just helps us cope with the experience of the stress that we're having. And so even though we tend to think about cortisol as a bad guy, it's part of what our brain and our body uses to cope with stress. And what you see in women who take hormonal birth control 
is that um, they have a blunted or absent cortisol response to stress, meaning that when they're experiencing stress, they're not having this surge. Um, And this is something that's very adaptive for us. And so it tells us, you know, or suggests that women who are on hormonal birth control may be less able to cope with stressors um, than women who are naturally cycling, given that they're not having this cortisol release. And look at the results of, you know, research looking at Um, issues related to mental health and women's ability to deal with and regulate stress and anxiety, it suggests that this may be harming women's mental health um, because there is a lot of research now that links um, hormonal birth control pill use with reduced mental health, reduced ability to um, sort of cope with anxiety um, and an increased increased probability of being um, prescribed antidepressants. Mm -hmm. So all of these things sort of consistent with the idea that mm. some of these changes in the stress response may be contributing um, to negative mental health effects on women. Mm. And that's particularly stark for um, younger women, right? Um, yeah. So when you look at the mental health effects of hormonal birth control, you generally see that the women who are hardest hit by them tend to be adolescent women. So women who are ages mm. 50. 19. Um, Mm -hmm. So these women are are a group that we, you know, really should be very cautious of um, in terms of uh, prescribing or recommending hormonal birth control, particularly when we're talking about um, using it for reasons other than contraception, right? Because obviously like nobody thinks that a 15 year old girl should be getting pregnant um, because it's, you know, it's in, so if, if, if there, if you have a 15 year old, who's not going to responsibly use other forms of contraception, you know, then it might be worth weighing those risks. But for a lot of women, especially in the States, you know, a lot of these young women, they start cycling and their doctors immediately put them on hormonal birth control to try to do things like regulate their cycles or minimize acne. And I think that this is something that we should be very cautious of given the high risk of developing issues related to mental health that are associated with adolescent pill use. Mm. And it can't impact your fertility. Um, being on it for a prolonged period, right? That's that's a bit of a misconception. That is a misconception. No, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not linked to reductions in fertility. The only way that it is sort of associated with reductions in fertility is just because of choices that women are making, right? Yeah, well, we're having kids later. Yeah, because we're having kids later, exactly. Yeah. And that's associated with reduced fertility. Yeah. So obviously the pill is this sort of enormously powerful tool that we have available to us that at the same time has a pretty catastrophic effect on women's bodies, whether like for good or bad, like neutrally, it just, it has a big impact on us. But that's not something that's spoken about um, all that commonly, right? You know, it's, it's, as you say in the book, it's something that we see as being kind of solved. So what do you see being the main unintended consequences of that. I struggle to believe that that information being withheld is malice or <laughs> something like that. So what do you think is driving driving that? Gosh, you know, I think that it's a really, I, I think that there's some cultural forces at play here. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's like women uh, are rightfully very protective of the birth control pill. Um, and I think about this right now in the United States, especially with everything that's been going on with uh, the Roe versus Wade, you know, overturning um, federal protections for women's right to choose. And, you know, given how important 
uh, fertility regulation is to women's upward political, social, and economic mobility. Um, I think women tend to be very cautious of um, critical conversations about the birth control pill because we don't want to give anybody ammunition that they can use take it away from us just because it is so important. And I think that that's been um, one, you know, force that's made these conversations more difficult. Um, I will say that I think that women are, you know, nowadays, I think that we've become a lot more tolerant of gray area conversations where we can both recognize the importance of hormonal birth control and women's access to it. Um, especially given the important role that pregnancy prevention plays in our ability to do things like achieve educational goals, um, but also be able to have critical conversations about what the trade-offs are that we're making if we make those choices. And I, I think that we're in a little bit of a different place than we used to be, you know, even 15 years ago, where people are willing to have these conversations and recognize that it's nuanced and that there's not a clear-cut, one-size-fits-all answer. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's interesting because obviously there's all of these other social implications of the pill, like you cite an interesting study around men having less motivation and self-control when women appear to be more available to them. Am I kind of quoting that correctly? Yeah, so, so one, one of the points that I make in the book is just this idea that whenever you have a, a change... Um, like the birth control pill, which mm. has the big impacts on women's behavior with one of those impacts being that, of course, women are more willing to engage in short-term sex than we ever have been before in history um, because we don't have to worry about pregnancy, um, that this cultural change can then lead to um, changes in other people as well, right? Because when you have women changing their behavior, that means that it's going to change the behavior of other women and it's going to change the behavior of men. Um, and so an example I give in that um, in the book is of a study where researchers looked at the role of men's beliefs about how difficult it is to get women in bed and how that relates to men's achievement motivation. Um, because you know, men's achievement has been very powerfully influenced, like a very power motivator, a very powerful motivator of men's um, achievement behavior is women. Right. There's this great quote by Aristotle Onassis that says, um, without women, all the power and status in the world would be meaningless. And I think that for a lot of men, that that's true. Um, and so these researchers were sort of putting that to the test a little bit and looking at whether men's achievement motivation and just sort of willingness to exert self-control would be related to their beliefs about how easy it is to get women in bed. And so they randomly assigned uh, men and women to um, read one of two fictitious newspaper articles, right? One was about how difficult it is to find a romantic partner, you know, or, or hook up with somebody on campus. And then one talking about how easy it is. And what they found was that when women read an article like this, reading either that it's really difficult to find hookup partners I'm in dating partners, or it's really diff it's really easy to find hookup partners or dating partners. Um, it had no influence on women's um, reported sort of achievement orientation, like how much they wanted to achieve and how good of a job they wanted to have and how much college they wanted to finish and how high their self control was. But it was in, it did influence men's, 
And what we found is that is, yeah, what they found was that men reported being increasingly motivated to achieve a lot more um, when they believed that getting partners was hard than they were when they believed that getting partners was difficult. And so this is just simply to say that by changing women's willingness to consent to sex without men having to had to accomplish a whole lot, that this could potentially be playing a role in the achievement gap that we see where women are the ones who are getting more college degrees um, than are men. And this, of course, isn't to say that, well, then women shouldn't be having short-term sex and women are responsible <laughs> for the men, right? Because men need to take care of them, their damn selves. Um, but rather, it's just simply to say, like, you know, when we make small changes in individual women, it has a cascading impact on the world. Um, and some of those things are will be good and some of those things will be bad. Um, and, you know, as researchers, we just need to try to better understand these different processes. That way we can create the world we want. Yeah. And I mean, as you say, it's it's about women understanding these different effects and being able to make their own choices about, about what they want to do. Obviously, yeah. when you start to look at the evidence you could perceive that a lot stacks up in favor of not taking hormonal contraceptives. Obviously it's different for everyone and some people will feel better on the pill. Some people will feel better off of the pill. What advice do you generally give women who are trying to work out whether to stay on it, whether to come off it, how to work out what pill might be right for them if they're feeling that they're not feeling great on their current contraceptive? Yeah. Education, 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 <laughs> education. So it's all about knowing yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's, it's about know, it's about knowing you and your body. And the only way that you can learn about you and your body is by doing things like journaling, right? Keeping track of like understanding your cycle, um, understanding how you feel on things and make sure that you're checking in with yourself and then really educating yourself on the range of effects that are possible from hormonal birth control. Right. And so for a lot of us, you know, if we go on the pill, we have no idea what the range of consequences are that we might experience. I mean, that's the reason I wrote the book. You know, I wrote um, the pill changes everything as a way to sort of educate women on these things. So that way they know what to look out for. Um, but then also to make sure that you're keeping track of yourself. If you go on hormonal birth control, make note of how you're feeling, keep a journal, you know, see whether or not the way that you're changing, the way that you feel is changing over time. Evaluate how is your sexual desire? How is your mood? How is your, you know, ability to learn and remember things? How do you feel about um, your motivational uh, status with respect to exercise? The things that are important to you, keep track of those things and see whether they change over time. Um, And there's also resources for, you know, understanding the different types of hormonal birth control that are out there. Um, I, I wrote this article um, and it's it's out there. Um, it's it, it's free. It's on my blog. It's called How to Choose the Least Worst Birth Control. And it gives pointers to women about how to troubleshoot their, if they are on hormonal birth control and they don't like how they feel, but they don't want to transition off. They want to try something else. I give pointers on how to understand what are the differences between the different types of hormonal birth control. Um, so that way, if they want to troubleshoot with their doctor, um, they sort of know where they should go next. 
but it's really just all about educating themselves. You know, it's about, it's about educating yourself on, on what the pill can do. And then also educating yourself on how you're responding. Because as you were saying, you know, there's no one size fits all solution for everybody is going to differ for everyone. And for some of us, it might mean that we feel better on hormonal birth control. And for some of us, it might mean that we feel better off of it. Thanks for listening to The Philosophy of Sex. And a huge thank you to Sarah Hill. Head to the show notes for more information about Sarah and her book, How the Pill Changes Everything. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fecho, who edited this episode and wrote the music. If you like what you're hearing or have a question, please leave us a review or email us at info at becoming.me. And don't forget to subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com